from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. This weekend, we are on the road from the 2022 Commodity Classic right here in New Orleans. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Russia places a ban on exports as another black swan potentially hits the fertilizer market. They are almost 20% of the global operating capacity of the entire world. Why even this doesn't create worst case scenario for fertilizer availability and prices. As the U.S. places a ban on Russian oil, why commodity groups say ethanol is a ready-made solution to fill the gap today. And in John's world... Things you may not have known about Ukraine. Now for the news, Ukraine announcing this week that it is banning the export of several key ag commodities. It says it's doing so in order to prevent a humanitarian crisis in the country. For now, it will not allow the exports of rye, barley, buckwheat, millet, sugar, salt, and meat. It also imposed export licenses, but not an outright ban on wheat, corn, and sunflower oil. As we've been reporting, Ukraine, along with Russia, supply almost 30% of the world's wheat exports. And Russia announcing a ban of exports, too. Josh Lenville of Stone X Group says this could be another black swan for fertilizer. So I focus on the Russia piece because they are a major, major exporter across all of the major fertilizers. And just going through them, urea, they account for 14% of the global export total. UAN has been anywhere from 25 to 31% the last couple of years. Phosphate, 10%. Uh, potash, they are, they are almost 20% of the global operating capacity of the entire world. They're a big deal. Losing Russia exports is a very big deal. I don't care where you are in the earth, it matters to you. Well, USDA releasing its latest supply and demand estimates this week. And with the crisis in Ukraine, really the report was overlooked. USDA making small revisions to South America, though. When you take a look at the supply picture here in the U.S., USDA says corn ending stocks are lower from last month thanks to an increase in exports and corn used for ethanol raised 25 million bushels. Stocks reported at 1.4 billion bushels and the number was slightly less than the trade expected. Now for soybeans, 285 million bushels still in the bin, slightly above trade expectations. Exports were raised 40 million bushels, wheat coming in at 653 million bushels with exports cut by 10 million, a little higher than what the trade was expecting. Prices for all three commodities are much higher right now, but economists say farmers need to watch for downside risk. Well, USDA also taking an early look about what the Russian invasion in Ukraine could potentially mean for grain supply. The agency is stating in the latest supply and demand report that military action has significantly increased the uncertainty of ag supply and demand conditions in the region as well as globally. It says this month's report represents an initial assessment of the short-term impacts. Looking at world wheat stocks, they came in much higher than anticipated, but it did cut 4 million tons from Ukraine and 3 million from Russia. For soybeans, global stocks were lowered almost 3 million metric tons to just under 90 million, the lowest since 2015. That was due to lower exports from South America. Many people were probably surprised that uh, global ending stocks of wheat were up 3 million metric tons. Um, and when you step back and think about it, it, it makes a lot of sense. This conflict is very different than if we had a production shortfall due to a drought or disease or something like that somewhere in the world, right? The, the bushels are still there. They're just pent up and they, they can't escape, right? So when we see revisions down in 
Ukraine and Russia wheat exports, it's not like they just disappear. They go into ending stocks. And of course, those ending stocks are captured in world ending stocks as well. And the invasion in Ukraine is causing wild swings in the wheat market. Earlier this week, wheat traded in a $2 range just in a day. Yahoo Finance talking with one market watcher who studies the impact price increases of food stable commodities like wheat have had throughout history, saying, quote, it is a biblical event when you run low on wheat stocks. You won't see a global food shortage. Unfortunately, what you're going to see globally is that billions of people might not be able to afford to buy the food, end quote. And while he doesn't believe the world will run out of wheat, he says prices could continue to rise and vulnerable populations like in developing countries will be the most impacted. All right, that's it for the news. Well, a winter storm blanketing parts of the country this week, including areas of the plains that really needed the moisture. We'll have a check of weather when we come back. Get in the game and be part of the 2022 Bracket Busters Challenge presented by Case IH. It's farmer versus farmer for a chance to win the $1,000 top prize. Head to agweb.com today to fill out your bracket. Your U.S. Farm Report forecast is brought to you by Zoetis. Even though calves don't wait for the perfect weather to arrive, you can count on Zoetis to be there. Share a picture of your newest calf and you could win a calving season survival kit. Enter now at calvingseason.com. Time now for a check of weather. Well, a winter storm bringing much needed moisture to parts of the West and the Plains this week. Matt Yurisovic joins us now with weather. Matt, a nice winter storm this week, but the West still extremely dry. That's right, Tyne. Still needing a lot of moisture back there in the West. And as we head over the next really week, week and a half, we're going to get some moisture, but we are still looking at extreme to exceptional drought conditions, even still expanding in parts of Oklahoma, Texas, back into the mountains of New Mexico as well. We still have extreme drought conditions in the northern tier there, parts of Montana, over into uh, really parts of uh, Las Vegas, down toward Las Vegas in Nevada, and up into the Cascade Mountains. We're also watching for abnormally dry and even moderate drought conditions starting to expand down the east coast and across the Gulf Coast as well. So back here in the west, we're going to need a lot of moisture to resolve some of this, and it looks like it could be abnormally dry through the spring, maybe even into to the summer months as well. So taking a look now at our root zone again, we have a, a lot of moisture here with uh, several storm systems over the past couple of weeks that have dropped a lot of rain and even snow right across parts of the Ohio Valley down towards the Mississippi River Valley. Still drier after a lot of rainfall moved through the area across the East Coast and still again looking at very, very dry soil back there from parts of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas and Nebraska. Nebraska all the way towards the West Coast. Again, seeing that higher elevation snow, but right now needing a lot more of that to resolve some of those drought conditions. So that's a look at your root zone and taking a look here at the jet stream heading into next week. We'll see a couple of these. Here's an upper low spinning over the southeast through the middle part of next week and then another dip in the jet stream heading through next weekend. This could keep things very active across the lower 48 as we head through the next week and week and a half and could keep things a little bit damp back there in the west, which is good news for us. On Monday, though, looking at uh, the national map here, very mild in the southeast, some showers starting to move on out of the Gulf of Mexico here, and then we've got rain back here in the Pacific Northwest. Still chilly conditions up across the north, though, with another clipper system moving its way on 
on through could see some more light snow moving into the northern Great Lakes as we head through the day on Monday. Then on Wednesday, still cooler in the east, looking at another storm system off of the coast of Florida there could bring some shower activity to the southeast coast, even down into Florida. Mild across the center of the country, seeing a lot of sunshine with high pressure in control. And then back here to the west, dealing with more rain and higher elevation snow through the middle of the week. Then we get another bigger storm system starting to get going here through the second half of the week on Friday. A lot of rain starting to move out of the Gulf of Mexico here. That's going to slowly move towards the east coast and more showers and higher elevation snow back there in the west. Staying pretty mild, though, across the lower 48, heading through the second half of the week. And there's a look at the temperatures this week. Above normal, seeing normal there across the Rockies. Other than that, though, looking at above normal conditions for precipitation in the west and in the east as well. Time, back to you. Thanks, Matt. Well, commodity prices have been on quite the run, but volatility continues to be the name of the game. We'll talk markets from right here at Commodity Classic with Chip Flory, Chip Nellinger, as well as Arlen Suderman. That happens right after the break. U.S. Farm Report from the 2022 Commodity Classic is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Everything we offer is an answer to what we've heard from you. This is how we listen. By New Holland, your partner for every season. Visit NewHolland.com to learn more. By Tyrannus, the only crop intelligence platform that delivers end-to-end -end leaf level insights that simplify management and improve the bottom line. And by the United Soybean Board, your soy checkoff, moving soy forward, moving you forward. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend for our live taping. And commodity Classic here in New Orleans. We have Chip Flory, Chip Nellinger, and Arlen Suderman joining us today. All right, a lot to talk about, but this week, Chip, it's almost like we forgot there was a USDA report. I mean, not a lot of buzz leading up to it, not a lot of buzz after it, but were there any big shocks in that report this week from USDA? No, I don't think there were any huge shocks. We saw the increase in the corn exports. They were That may have surprised some people. It pulled that carryover down to a level four, uh, 1.44 billion bushels that I think is kind of on the edge of a little too snug for the market. It makes the supply side guys a little concerned going into the 2022-23 growing season. That's our supply side cushion. It's not very big. Yeah, it's not very big. When you look at also South America though, some cuts, but not a lot. And you have some forecasts out there. Ag Resource Company came out with a forecast of 119.5, under 120 for Brazil. And we're nowhere near that from, with, from USDA. We're not, but um, you know, we saw a seven, seven and a half million uh, ton cut by the USDA to the Brazil crop. Uh, I think the market's trading well beyond that, maybe in the 120 or slightly under range. Uh, I think the key is though, that's a pretty large cut for one month and they had a dramatic cut uh, you know, the month before as well. So the USDA usually takes a more conservative approach to that and, and uh, the fact that they've cut it so dramatically the last uh, couple of months, uh, probably uh, the market kind of has it right in that 120-ish range would be my guess. Okay, yeah, typically they do take a more conservative approach, but Arlen, where does Stone X stand at this point when it comes to South America and do you think USDA will be forced to make more cuts in the coming months? Yeah, absolutely. Our customer survey, which we do each month, is at 121.2 million metric tons and continuing to go down. 
And uh, USDA kind of came out of last month's report looking bad with Conab coming out the next day way below them. They did again. I'd say USDA needs to start catching up. Uh, the fact that they're making big cuts, it just shows how bad it is down there. Farmers are not selling. And I think the biggest evidence of how bad it is is the fact that uh, we've gone through a period where in the middle, the guts lot of harvest, where their basis at the ports was stronger than U.S. Gulf. And so that's why we had the big weekly export sales report come out this week during that period of time, huge soybean sales, because we were the cheap source. Yeah, and I think the, the number of sales that we're seeing on, on 22, 23 crop beans, it's evidence that they're, the whole world is concerned about the supply of soybeans going forward. And all USDA has done so far is decreased Chinese imports, but where's those soybeans gonna come from? They haven't decreased demand that yeah. much. And so eventually you're gonna have to count for that. Stocks at the ports for the crushers are only at 6.8 million metric tons. Um, the other 33 million metric tons they say China has, I'm not sure where all those are. A lot of that's food grade, grown locally, and not available for the crushers. But all of this has really taken a backseat to everything happening in Ukraine. And so we haven't really talked about this a lot. But if we are that short on our crop in South America, Chip, it seems like there could be a lot of upside potential for soybean prices. Do you think so? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, to these guys' point, it's, it's shrinking supply. And the fact that China is rushing uh, almost on a daily basis to buy our new crop beans, I think, is evidence of that. Arlen mentioned, you know, our beans uh, already uh, more competitive with South America. And then the, you throw this whole Ukrainian thing uh, in there. It's just, there's untold issues that, some of which we haven't even thought about. Can they get the crop in the ground? 75, 6% of the world sun oil exports come from there among a lot of other things. Right. And so it's just a major disruption and end users are scrambling right now. Well, and we're gonna talk about that in the next round table, but real quick when it comes to acreage, do you think that those decisions are locked in right now, Chip, or do you think we will see a big shift in acres this year? No, I don't think we're going to see a big shift at, at that 90-90 number, I think, is kind of where everybody's focused in on right now. Right. 89-91 on 91 on the corn side. I think that's kind of where we're at. Chip, Nellinger? Probably the opposite. I, I, I do think there's been a shift to more beans. I'd probably be, you know, 89-ish corn, 89 and a half, 91 beans. Okay, and, and Arlen, I know you've done some, some surveys. 91 and a half corn is where I'm at right now, 89.7 soybeans. Is wheat buying any acres? Uh, actually, it's starting to struggle to even hold on to acres right now. There's enough competition uh, from other crops. And now with the sunflower oil situation, even Northern Plains, the oils are becoming more competitive. Right. Well, there's a lot to unpack in the situation in Ukraine, so we're gonna do that in our second round table, but we need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on US Farm Report. Well, we've been talking a lot about the situation in Ukraine and the impact on the global markets. But when you break it down and really drill down to the numbers, it's easy to see why the situation could have a lasting impact. Here's Sean Phipps. It's all about Ukraine these days. And while I know you have been inundated with information, here are some facts that may have been overlooked and I have found interesting. First, many of us are just learning the geography of Ukraine. For example, I have seen this map several times showing the relative size of Ukraine compared to the U.S. The only problem with this map for me is the latitude's all wrong. Ukraine is much farther north. In fact, a better illustration would be something like this. 
while its continental weather is controlled by different airflows and distance from water than other similar regions, this higher latitude determines the length of days. Ukraine, like Canada, has only recently become a corn and soy export competitor, but was the breadbasket of Europe for centuries because of their enormous grain production, mostly wheat. Ukraine has about two-thirds of the richest soils in continental Europe. It's called Chernozem. It's that black, thick, and high in phosphorus and organic matter. The gradual change in cropping from small grains like wheat to corn is a response to changing climate, just like here in the northern Great Plains and the Grand Prairies of Canada. But as the weather has been warming significantly for the last few decades, precipitation has decreased, making drought a little more likely in any given year. Ukrainian productivity made it a target for Joseph Stalin in 1929 when he ordered the forced collectivization of millions of small farms. Then, as output dropped, they confiscated grain from the farms with the Soviet military. The Holdmore, or Great Famine, was the worst man-made disaster at the time, causing as many as 7 million deaths directly from starvation in 1932 and 33. Stalin was determined to end private land ownership and break the power of independent peasants. Late in the 20th century, the collectives were abandoned and land redistributed in small patches to descendants. Village residents usually band together and rent the acres from former collective farms to larger operators, boosting ag efficiency even with this very splintered ownership. Finally, during its golden age from about 800 to 1100 AD, Ukraine and Kiev specifically became one of the most powerful states in Europe. Many of their elite ruling class were descendants of Scandinavian Vikings who traded all the way down the Dnieper to Odessa in the Middle Ages. This remarkable past is reflected in the character of Ukrainians today. Thanks, John. Remember, if you have questions or comments for John, just email him. That's mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, when we come back, Machinery Pete. He has tractor tails this weekend. That's next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Firestone Ag. The Firestone Ag dealer network offers you the support, inventory, and resources you need. Visit firestoneag.com to find your local certified dealer. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of this cold and snow. So let's head to Louisiana and check out a farmall cub that belongs to Buddy Banks. The difference between the high crop and the standard version are basically the tire sizes. Instead of 12s on the standard, it's 15s on the front here. And the back, a standard cub would have 24s, and this one's got 30s. They've made a wide version, but we don't have the, the wide version components on this tractor. Got a one point fast hitch, something a little different. It goes, goes with our collection. Give you more clearance between your vegetables. They made a full row planter and cultivator set up for a cub with the wide version. And you could cultivate four, plant and cultivate four rows instead of one. And uh, mainly, you know, vegetables like carrots and onions and things like that. And we put the fast hitch on it and cleaned it up and gave it a coat of paint and some decals. And that uh, adjusts the, the level of your, your implement 
you could, you know, like if you were plowing, you could put a little tilt to it, or if you needed a level for a disc or whatever, you could adjust it, adjust it out level. The lever on the side by the fender is to nose the front down. If you were plowing with it and your front was too high, it wouldn't go in the ground, so you could lower that front down to where it would, where it would do a better job. Well, it's been two years since everyone gathered for Commodity Classic, and this year, the concerns are high, but the opportunities are also ahead. We'll tell you what's on the minds of everyone here at Commodity Classic next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. Well, despite the Russian oil ban announced, the Biden administration is doubling down on efforts to push electric vehicles. In a tweet on Tuesday, the president said, quote, loosening environmental regulations won't lower prices, but transforming our economy to run on electric vehicles powered by clean energy will mean that no one will have to worry about gas prices, end quote. But that is not the sentiment being shared at Commodity Classic this week. In a year that typically these commodity organizations would be setting priorities for the upcoming farm bill, instead they are navigating the issues farmers are facing today. The week after wheat prices climbed 40% in a week, the whiplash in wheat continued as wheat prices saw a $2 swing in just one day. When you have those two countries in a conflict, you are talking about a third of the world's wheat production. National Association of Wheat Growers CEO Chandler Gould says at a time when Ukrainian farmers are typically concerned about crops, the crisis is creating many unknowns. As the winter wheat, which is what Ukraine predominantly produces, is starting to come back to life and start to grow and head into that tillering stage, you know, here in the next six weeks, if your roads are bombed out, your bridges are bombed out, uh, you can't get into your field because maybe your field has had destruction. National Sorghum Producer CEO Tim Lust says it's having an impact on feed grains, including sorghum. I don't think we fully understand totally from an international's picture what all this means. We know that there are many disruptions of normal trade patterns. The extent of the damage won't be known for quite some time, but it's infrastructure that's also taking a hit. Their biggest part of their wheat belt is definitely on that eastern border where Russia has invaded. And that's where their wheat production predominantly is. Just this week, the U.S. and U.K. banned oil imports from Russia. The CEO of American Soybean Association, Stephen Sensky, thinks U.S. produced biofuels are a ready-made solution to help fill the gap today. Given the situation that's happening worldwide, given the, the uh, with the Russia-Ukraine situation and what a big exporter Russia is of, of energy, uh, given the administration's focus on climate, we have ready-made solutions to address both of, both of those. And that's through, you know, increasing, uh, you know, opportunities for uh, renewable biofuels uh, to compete and to provide incentives and to create that space. We think it's both good for national security and we think it's also good for the environment. Just last week, a group of commodity and farm organizations, including national corn growers and national sorghum producers, sent a letter to the White House urging the Biden administration to allow the sale of higher blends of ethanol year round. If we could get uh, a few political barriers out of the way, um, you know, that is something that we could deliver tangible results to lower fuel costs to U.S. consumers in weeks. 
uh, and not months, not years, but in weeks. From fuel inflation to food inflation, if you take Ukraine and Russia out of the mix this year, there are grave concerns about a shortage of food in developing countries. Ukraine wheat is predominantly going to, you know, Egypt, Turkey, um, Indonesia, Bangladesh, Philippines. And so it's those developing countries and some of the countries in Africa that are very dependent on that lower cost wheat than the high quality wheat that we produce here in the United States. Just this week, the Philippines made purchases of U.S. wheat and China came to the U.S. for more soybeans, a possible sign that fears of crop shortages are already at play. We look at our strong international demand tied to China, uh, you know, bought a couple of more boats uh, yet announced yesterday, uh, certainly have heard of some large U.S. corn purchases. And, and a lot of that really tied, I think, to the fact that uh, in China's case, a fair amount of uh, Ukraine grain uh, certainly does go into Russia. Sinsky says the crisis in Ukraine may prompt some producers to look at more corn or wheat, but overall, he still expects an expansion in U.S. soybean acres this year, even as EPA decisions are weighing on crop producers coast to coast. We've been very concerned about making sure that the regulatory decisions that are made by government agencies and really we're talking a lot about the EPA here, is not taking, as science-based, and they're not taking tools out of farmers' hands. As planters roll in southern and central Texas, it's a reminder the growing season is already here for some. Nobody is very confident about, uh, you know, the, the changes in the world in the last two weeks have not made the supply chain situation better. They potentially made it worse. Well, commodity groups also say that over the next couple months, if Ukraine and Russia don't get their crops planted, then it's an entirely different conversation about the global supply of grain. All right, when we come back talking about the supply of grain, our marketing roundtables kick back off. Chip Flory, Arlen Suderman, and Chip Nellinger rejoin me next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator. It's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by March 31st with coupon code USFR for $2 shipping per wheel. U.S. Farm Report from the 2022 Commodity Classic is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Everything we offer is an answer to what we've heard from you. This is how we listen. By New Holland your partner for every season. Visit newholland.com to learn more. By Tyrannus, the only crop intelligence platform that delivers end-to-end -end leaf level insights that simplify management and improve the bottom line. And by the United Soybean Board, your soy checkoff, moving soy forward, moving you forward. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend in New Orleans from Commodity Classic. All right, Chip, we didn't really talk much about Ukraine and the situation right. there. A lot has happened this week. But as we look at, okay, are Ukrainians going to get their crops planted this year? In your mind, what would be the best case scenario? Best case scenario is that the, the bombings stop, the killings stop, Russia leaves, and we get back to a Ukrainian rule in Ukraine. That's the best case scenario. I I don't I, I can't claim to know what's gonna happen here. I don't think anybody can claim to know what's gonna happen. But that doesn't seem to be in the cards with with uh, Putin's aggression, uh, with his the brutality that he has 
already exhibited his willingness to lie and call a ceasefire and break it immediately um, is very, very troubling and suggests that getting a crop out of Ukraine, getting supplies out of Russia in the year ahead, two years ahead, seems, seems unlikely. And I don't think the market is prepared for not getting any supply out of Ukraine in the year ahead. Yeah, Chip, do you think that is a real possibility? You look at the infrastructure that's already been damaged. I mean, we hope that they can get a crop, but when you have roads bombed out, when you have infrastructure now that, that's just not there, do you think it's possible that they can't even plant this year? Uh, I do. I think it's a strong possibility. They're essentially on the same growing season as, you know, kind of the, the I states, the I-80 corridor. I mean, if you think about it, uh, we don't like planting corn much past uh, the first week or so of June. Uh, that's less than 90 days away. And, you know, you have to question at this point, is that even possible? He's not pulling out of there. They may stop bombing, but he didn't go into Ukraine for the idea of pulling back out in a month. So he's there to stay. I think it's possible in the, uh, in the West they maybe get some crop in the ground, but they have so many issues. They can't get seed and fertilizer where it needs to be. Roads, bridges are bombed out. They're running out of fuel. So I just question whether they can get much in the ground. So if we do not see a crop out of Ukraine, if we don't see a crop out of Russia, how tight will supplies become? Well, let's keep in mind they were tight already before this happened. Because of other dynamics, we were already tightening up the balance sheet. And so if, if you take all the world's supply of corn, you take China off of it, because we believe USDA is overstating Chinese corn supplies uh, by about 49 million metric tons, take United States off, what's the situation in the rest of the world? According to USDA data, it's about 34-day supply, the tightest in 20 years. So there wasn't any room for margin before that. Then you take away a year's production. And our customers in Ukraine, you know, farmers have a can-do attitude. If they can do it, they're going to do it. And our customers in Ukraine are saying there is no incentive to do this. There's a numerous reasons. The winter wheat looks good where the wheat uh, tank tracks haven't gone over it. About 50% of the fertilizer was in place prior to this happening. Some of that got applied top dress in the western part of the country prior to the war breaking out. Then everything came to halt. Now we even wonder if that'll get harvested. Yeah, yeah I mean, I just can't imagine. But Chip, are we seeing any export activity at all in the Black Sea region right now? I, well, I'm sure that there, are, that, that there are some bushels making their way out, uh, whether it be by truck, whether it be by rail, uh, making its way into Asia. but. Uh, Trade has been restricted significantly coming out of the out of the Black Sea. Obviously, yeah. Chip, you agree? I agree 100 uh, percent. I'm certainly not an expert on it, but uh, <laughs> maritime insurance—if there's an active war, all insurance is null and void. So there's right. not much shipping out of there. There's talk of maybe railing some grain uh, through Poland to get to a port. Uh, you know, that's just incredibly difficult. So Arlen, what's your advice for feed users right now when you look at this crisis and we don't have a handle on the impact? We're, we're going to see a lot of volatility like we've seen for quite some time. There'll be times it calms down. So the one thing you're going to need to do is have a plan, write it down, know what your needs are, try to take some of the emotion out of it. And when we get the breaks in prices, take advantage of it. As we talk to customers around the world, the big thing is now trying to get coverage of your needs if you're an end user to make sure you have that coverage. Not just protection, but actual physical coverage. Um, that's more true overseas than it is here, but that's certainly gonna be the story of the year ahead. All right, let's take a break and we'll be right back. 
Well, each year at Commodity Classic, the American Soybean Association honors those in conservation with the ASA Legacy Conservation Award. And this year, one finalist from South Dakota is proof that conservation is more than a buzzword on their farm. Conservation is what we've been doing here for 30 some years, and it's why we're still here. Brian Johnson's conservation efforts have him following in the footsteps of his father, Alan. See how mellow it is. An early innovator who originally used no-till to help conserve water. Dad started no-till back in 86, and we haven't looked back since then. Today, the Johnsons focus not just on water retention, but on resiliency and soil health. By having a healthy living soil that has pore space, you can essentially get through these tough times and build a system that has diversity not only above ground but below ground with the, the microorganisms. Jamie says they achieve this through a wide diversity of crops and rotations, including cover crops. We've done cover crops for over 12, 13 years now and it's part of our rotation, it's part of what we do. We don't even think twice about not using them. It is just as important as everything else that we do on our farm. But she believes the real key is their regenerative and holistic approach to conservation. The whole farm, every single acre works in tandem, works in sync. Try to be intrinsic with everything that we do because the environment does all work together. That was the main reason they introduced cattle back into the business. Integrating the livestock back onto the land has really, really upped the game on the organic matter, reducing input costs. In fact, by using livestock manure combined with variable rate and split applications, they use less commercial fertilizer. If we can reduce our end use ratio on our corn from one down to 0.6 is kind of my goal here. The less commercial fertilizer we use, the better for the environment. And Brian says through no-till and their diverse rotations, they've also been able to decrease herbicide use. By incorporating rye, for example, in our rotation, well, after corn, we can uh, change kind of how much herbicide we have to use in the spring on our soybean production as well. At the same time, the Johnsons are seeing positive yield responses on their operation. Our yields that we've seen have been steady or increasing for each year over the past, oh, it's probably been 10 years now, and I attribute a lot of that to our, our soil health system. They've also established new shelter belts and grass waterways and continue to look for ways to lower their carbon footprint and be more sustainable for their customers and for the future. We are very passionate about what we do and that's why we do the things we do is so that we can hopefully create a legacy of, of nurturing the land. Congratulations to all the finalists and next weekend we will share you the story of the national winner that was announced this week. All right, we need to take a quick break and then John Phipps has customer support. Lots of questions about Ukraine. Well, with all the embargoes being announced against Russia right now, it's bringing up some memories of the past and questions about the Russian grain embargo of the 1980s. Here's John Phipps. As you can imagine, I've gotten several Ukraine questions recently, and some of these I touched on in today's John's World. If the USA enacts an embargo on Russian products, what sort of impact will it have on the ag market in the USA? That's from Robbie Tiffin in Greenville, South Carolina. 
First of all, I leave market predictions up to our experts for good reason. As far as an embargo, here's what we trade with Russia. From Russia to the US, we buy oil, coal, and natural gas, fuels, and that constitutes about two-thirds of their exports, followed by precious metals, mostly platinum, steel, potash, chemicals. From the US to Russia, we sell them planes, cars, and parts for them. Overall trade balance is a $23 billion deficit, which is only about 4% of our overall trade deficit. Basically, we just don't trade much with Russia, and their commodities can be replaced from other sources. So any embargo impact would be minimal for the U.S. The impact on Russia could be considerably worse, especially for key finished products. From Steve Stahl in Iliopolis, Illinois. If they are invaded by the Russians, it looks like a lot of tillable land would be destroyed by bombings, compaction from military equipment, and pollution from the war effort. Since they export a lot of ag products every year, this event could really affect the markets worldwide. Steve, I showed earlier how enormous Ukraine is. Uh, Two-thirds of its population live in major cities, which is where such attacks are focused. There's no military value in putting craters in millions of Ukrainian hectares of cropland or taking new routes across wheat fields. The greater threat is, you guessed it, supply and distribution chain disruption when infrastructure like bridges or ports are destroyed. And from Paul Haley in Paola, Kansas. How will Russia's border situation affect the exporting of Ukraine's record-yielding corn and wheat harvest to countries we usually export to? Oddly enough, there's not a lot of customer overlap. We average only about $50 million of wheat to Egypt, for example, compared to Ukraine's billions. Ukraine has several key export partners in Africa and the Mideast. Most of these countries will struggle to compete with our wealthier trading partners like Japan and China to buy our grain. So they are at the highest risk of shortages. As always, war costs fall on those least able to pay for them. Thanks, John. Well, with all these talks about embargoes, is ethanol the answer into replacing Russian oil? There's a new study that hints that that may just be the answer. We'll have the details next. Find farm equipment on Machinery Pete's March 22nd online auction. No reserve, no buyer fees. Start bidding now at auctions.machinerypeat.com. Get in the game and be part of the 2022 Bracket Busters Challenge presented by Case IH. It's Farmer versus Farmer for a chance to win the $1,000 top prize. Head to agweb.com today to fill out your bracket. Well, just this week, Iowa Senators Charles Grassley as well as Joni Ernst introduced a bill that would replace displaced oil from Russia with biofuels. That includes ethanol as well as biodiesel. And according to the Nebraska Ethanol Board, it's not just possible, it can happen just by increasing blends of ethanol from E10 to E15. Nebraska Ethanol Board releasing a white paper this week showing ethanol will play a key role in reducing the need for Russian crude oil and other petroleum production imports. That's by displacing Russian import-derived gasoline. The Nebraska Ethanol Board telling me there's an average of 200,000 barrels a day of Russian imports that become gasoline. And the study found that could be replaced just by upping blends of ethanol from E10 to E15 
as soon as tomorrow. This white paper was so uh, uh, eye-opening for me because it allowed us to realize we have the capacity today to eliminate Russian imports as for a national security issue. And we as farmers and people involved in agriculture, we need to ask our local retailers, we need to ask our co-ops, hey, we need to switch to E15 today, we need to do it now. It's for our country, it's for our economy, it's for the entire rural, entirety of rural America. There was a lot of buzz about that story here at Commodity Classic this week. Well, speaking of buzz, March Madness is getting underway, and we have a way for you to participate. You can get off the bench and in the game. That's because on March 13th, brackets will open in the 2022 Bracket Busters Challenge presented by Case IH. Farmers will take on farmers for a chance at the $1,000 top prize. So make sure to check out agweb.com slash bracket busters for details, terms, as well as conditions. Again, if you want to participate in that bracket busters, that's on agweb.com. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. It was so good to be here in person at Commodity Classic and see everyone this week. Make sure to join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.